you so much, and we enjoy tag teaming. Turn to somebody and say, God's a good, good father. Now, turn to somebody else and say, dream bigger than your present provision. Yeah. Wasn't that good? How many of you were blessed by that session with Greg? Wow, wonderful. And, you know, that that is a perfect illustration of what I was talking about last night about getting pregnant with a vision to do something for God. I mean, he's a young, young kid, 26 years old, and all these things start happening. But why did they happen? They, they happened because he had a call from God upon his life. He got pregnant with a vision to do something significant. You know, boy, we need testimonies like that. Wow. Well, there's so many things that I'd like to talk to you about. I told Bob this morning uh, to use an expression from uh, the Apostle Paul in the old King James. He said, I'm in a straight betwixt two. <laughs> and, it, of course, the straight he was in was whether to stay on earth or go to heaven. But my, my straight was deciding what to talk about because I've got two things on my heart. And one is primarily for leaders and the other is for everybody. So I think I'm just going to talk about both of them. So <laughs> we'll talk, talk as long as we can. I, I wish I had time to talk a little bit more about what God's doing overseas and missions. Again, if any of you are interested in what we're doing in missions, we've got some brochures up here. But uh, let me just quickly share something that I shared at the Crown Center uh, on Sunday. What we have been able to track over the last 15 months from from people that have been trained around the world In the last 15 months, we have done 264 Great Commission conferences around the world. We have trained 13,372 national pastors in the last 15 months, and they have won 48,988 people to the Lord. 21,000 baptisms, and listen to this, in the last 15 months, they have planted 6,411 new churches. Isn't God amazing? I'm telling you, I just, I stand amazed at what He's doing. And we've had 297 national workers called to become cross-cultural church planters to help reach the people who have never heard. But anyway, that's, that's enough of that. Okay, let's, um, I, I want to just kind of uh, continue in the vein that uh, I was talking about last night. And I want to ask you, how many of you want to be more effective in your work for God? See, I'm, I'm going to raise both hands. 
on that in one foot because I want to be effective at what God calls me to do. And I want to tell you, it's not enough just to work for God. And if you can understand what I'm saying, it's not good enough just to be faithful. Now, faithful is good, and faithful has its rewards. But if you look in the Scripture, when Jesus talks about being faithful in the parable of the talents and the parable of the pounds, it wasn't people that just stayed in one place for a long time. It it, it was people who did something with what God entrusted them with. So please understand, there is a reward for faithfulness. But it's not good enough just to, to stay at one place for a long time if nothing is happening. See, we... Greg, Greg is such a good example of, of this, of, of somebody who gets a passion to do something for God. Now, here's what I want to say to you. If you really want to be effective for God at whatever God has called you to do, now this is, this is primarily for leaders. If you're a pastor or uh, you lead a ministry or you're a missionary or if you're the head of a children's church program or a youth director, people who are in leadership positions, if you really want to be effective for God, four things are crucial. And I I want to talk about these four. And if you leave any one of these four out, you will not be highly successful, I can guarantee you. And the first one is bigger vision. Everybody say bigger vision. Now vision is where everything starts. See, everything that's powerful in the world, everything that's ever been accomplished in the world that is, quote, significant in in the way we often look at it, begins with vision. It begins with Somebody like you or me who hears from God, we get a call from God. And we get pregnant with this this vision to do something for God. And please listen to me. If you're doing something right now that you can accomplish in your own strength, With what you're doing right now, your vision is too small. See, if you can do it, if you can see a way that you can do it without God's help, just with what you're doing right now, your vision is way too small. And one of the things we've got to have, if if what's going to happen in Heartland Conference that's in Bishop's heart, If it's going to happen, we're going to have to have people that get a big vision from God. See, vision vision is what keeps you moving when there are obstacles. How many of you have ever faced obstacles? (laughs) 
So if you've been a leader more than 15 minutes, then you've had some obstacles in your life. And, and vision is what keeps you moving through those obstacles and past them because you know there's a call from God to get something done. And uh, one of the things I was talking about last night is that vision is what draws other people to you. Do you, you did you hear what uh, Greg was talking about, the people that God sent to him? He was talking about Bill Hedrick, Bill Mash. I, I was thinking, how many of those were IPHC guys? <laughs> yeah, see, it, it's vision that attracts people to you. That, that, that's, what, that's what happened with Jesus. That's the reason, I was saying last night, that people would quit their jobs and follow this itinerant 30-year-old Jewish rabbi because there was something in his heart. There was a call from God, and people wanted to be a part of it. And even after he left, people would die for him. Can you imagine? People would die for him. Why? Because they had caught the vision. There was something out there that was bigger than they are. Proverbs 29, 18, all of you are familiar with this. In the King James, it says, Where there is no vision, the people perish. Or some of the newer translations say, where there is no vision, people cast off restraint. And the point is that they can't be mobilized. Everybody's just kind of doing their own thing, you know. But it's vision that, that grabs them and attracts them and mobilizes them. That's the reason I was telling you last night, if you get a big enough vision, people will follow you just like they followed Jesus because people are looking for something that is meaningful. And, and again, Greg's a perfect example of that or, or Rick Warren. All of you know about Rick Warren, most of you, uh, Saddleback Church, one of the most amazing churches. Do you know Rick Warren started with 17 people in a little rented building, but he was pregnant with a vision. See, he knew something was going to happen, and he told our people, he said, our church will be a place where hurting people can find love and acceptance. He said, we will evangelize thousands of people. He said, we will train and release people in ministry. He said, one day we will have a Bible college. We will train and send hundreds of people into ministry. Now, when he started preaching, nobody believed him. You know, they did, Pastor, we've heard that before. He doesn't really mean that, but he did mean it because he was pregnant. See, there was something inside him, and he kept preaching, and he kept preaching, and finally one day one of his members believed, and they said amen. 
That's right. We will see that happen. He kept preaching. Somebody else believed. And then another one believed, and then it began to catch on, and people started witnessing to their friends and bringing them to Christ, and they started a little Bible college, and now they have a church of what, something like 30,000 people? See, it all starts with, with this vision that, that tends to capture people, and And I'm convinced that a lot of us don't have that vision. And unless you get it, I'm sorry to tell you, but nothing significant is going to happen. What's going to happen is what has always happened unless you hear from God and you get this vision to do something for the Lord. We need to have our hearts captured by something. You remember Matthew 13 where uh, the, the uh, kingdom chapter in the Bible where Jesus starts talking about what the kingdom is like and, and he gives a couple of illustrations. He talks about a man walking through a field and he stumbles over a treasure. And he looks at that and he opens it up and it a treasure that blows his mind. What does he do? What did he do? Sold everything he had and bought that field. He wasn't interested in the field. He was interested in the treasure. The treasure grabbed him. And, and the, a similar, the man searching for pearls, this pearl merchant, And one day he finds a a pearl that blows his mind. He's never seen anything like this. And he goes out and does the same thing, sells everything he has and buys that pearl. What, what, What he's talking about is the glory of the kingdom, the glory of Jesus and what he is doing in this world today. See, that's got to grip our hearts. Now, somebody may ask, okay, how do do you get this? If you don't have this compelling vision right now that's drawing people to you, how do you get it? That's a good question. Thank you for asking me. And I've got two answers to that. One, One, I'll tell you what happened that changed my life. I was... Uh, in the master's program at Southwestern in a class on uh, destiny processing by um, Bobby Clinton, and he gave an assignment that changed my life. He said, if money were no object and you could do anything in the world you wanted to do, what would you do? That changed my life because I sat down and wrote the strategy for Mission Catalyst for what I'm doing right now. So, how do you get that vision? Ask yourself this question. If you could right now do anything in the world that you wanted to do, money were no object. Somebody said, I'll give you $100,000 to live on per year. And you can do anything you want to do, and I'll fund it. What would you do? 
See, that is a good question. Because the answer to that question is what God put in your heart. See, there's something inside you. It's what I was talking about last night. You were created for a purpose. And, and actually two purposes. To know God. To build relationship with Him. And to participate with Him in some way in what He's doing in the earth. So everything begins with that vision. When somebody gets pregnant to do something for God, I can tell, I can tell her she's wanting to say something right now. The vision, and I want to say this to some of the younger people, that we don't just get an idea, but it has to be a true vision, a true call. There is so much celebrity in the body of Christ now that we end up imitating or wanting to imitate a celebrity rather than hearing the call of God and getting the vision that God puts in our heart. And let me tell you, if you simply are imitating a celebrity, you will fizzle out you will end up either in moral, financial uh, failure. You will end up with some devastating thing. The only, only, only thing that will sustain you is a true call from God. The call that God stirs up in you. Whether anybody notices, whether you ever get on the front of charisma or Christianity today, I can I just tell you I am so sick of Christian celebrity. And may God get us back to the point that we hear the call, hear the call of God. And the call of God is big. Now what I'm saying it's not that you're going to stay little. It's not going to be anything that anybody notices. I am saying that it will be something worthy of the kingdom of God. And that vision will sustain you in the hard times. Can, can I tell them one other thing? Just what do you think? <laughs> I just need to give you an illustration. Listen, uh... Uh, guys and gals that are uh, connected, hooked up with these people that have big visions, and sometimes they just scare you silly. And I, I've been there. And when Jim came and told me that God had spoken to him about starting this missions organization and what he was seeing in his spirit, we were conference superintendents in the East New Horizons conference. And you know what? I liked that. I was comfortable. I loved being with all the people serving. I'm, and besides, we got a paycheck every month. <laughs> and I really liked that. But you know, something he said to me that just touched my heart. 
Jim said, I can go to my grave easier knowing that I tried and failed than knowing I never tried at all. And when he said that, I said, I'm in. I'm in. We sold our house and set 57 years old, started all over, put all the money we had, any amount of savings, everything went into that. Let me tell you, two years ago, Jim was getting ready to go on a trip. We were at the bottom of the barrel financially. At that point, we were living uh, temporarily in London, the church that we were helping in, the IPHC church, took an offering that morning. It was 115 pounds, which is what? About 150, $175. Jim put that 115 pounds cash in his pocket. It was the only money that we had, either in Mission Catalyst account or in his pocket. And I said, Jim, Maybe you're supposed to cancel this trip. He already had his ticket. Don't, Jim doesn't like to cancel stuff. So that was not a good idea. Anyway, he said, this will be enough. I've got my ticket. This will be enough for three nights hotel. He doesn't stay in nice places, I can tell you that. But anyway, he said, this will be enough for three nights. If nothing happens, then I will cancel so he took off. I'm staying at home in our little flat in London. I'm crying out to God. I said, Lord, I would love to see a miracle. Went to bed that night, went to sleep. I get a text in the middle of the night. Somebody back in Texas texted me and said, can you tell me how we get money to Mission Catalyst? And I, I said, well, sure. And I, I sent her a text back and explained that. And uh, she texted me back and said, I have this amount of money that we are going to deposit. I thought she had made a mistake with too many zeros in her text. $50,000 went into Mission Catalyst account that night. It went on, let me tell you, in those times, if you don't have vision, you'll quit. If you don't have call from God, you'll quit. And I'm quitting now. Okay, thank you. But now, here's, here's another question. Why would those people give the 50000 Yeah, because we had a vision. We, we had something that they thought was worthy for them to give $50,000. I'm telling you, if you get pregnant with a vision from God, people will respond. People will be attracted. So, if you want to be really successful at something, the first thing is what? Everybody say, bigger vision. Okay, now here's the second thing. Deep passion. Now, please listen to me. People with passion change the world. People that have little passion change nothing. 
If you're going to do something significant for God, you've got to get a big vision, and then you have got to get deep passion to carry it out. It's like I was talking about last night. The greatest weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. Now, please hear me. If you're going to do something for God, you've got, your soul has got to get set on fire to do something for Him. Now, we're, we're talking about passion. I read, I just read uh, another definition. I, I preach about passion all over the world, but I just read this definition. What is passion? One guy said, it is the voluntary will to engage completely. The voluntary will to engage completely. To give everything you have to that cause. See, that's, that's what passion is. It's it's an, inter, uh, an inner drive. It's a desire. And, and it's, it's energy. See, passion produces energy. Please understand that. If you're going to do something for God, you've got to have plenty of energy. How many of you know that? And passion produces energy. And passion also, coupled with vision, is what attracts people to you. John Wesley said, if you set yourself on fire, people will come and watch you burn. <laughs> yeah, so he's, he's talking about passion. Now, I'm not talking about intensity. Now, please listen. There is a difference between intensity and passion. It comes from Dr. Tim Elmore. Listen to this. Intensity is marked mostly by emotion. Passion is marked mostly by conviction. Intensity is often packaged with hype. Passion comes with authenticity. Now get a hold of that. Passion comes with authenticity. Intensity comes across as superficial. Passion comes across as natural. Intensity is communicated by talking loudly. Passion is communicated by talking plainly. Wow. There is a place for intensity in leadership, he says, but it's no substitute for passion. If you want, if you want to be successful, bigger vision, deep passion. See, the people, the people that, that we hold up as the models were people with passion. John Knox. Do you know that, that John Knox influenced the whole country of Scotland? T. 
tens of thousands of churches were planted because of John Knox. How did he do that? Well, here's the most famous quotation from John Knox. It's a simple little prayer. And John Knox prayed, Give me Scotland or I die. Now that's, that's passion. Give me Scotland or I die. You know what happened? God gave him Scotland. See, the, the, great, the great people of God had this. Hudson Taylor. What Hudson Taylor did in China is remarkable. Do you know that, that 1,000 missionaries went to China because of Hudson Taylor? Many of them carried their belongings in a casket because they knew they weren't coming home. They knew they were going to die in China, and most of them did. Why would they do that? See, that, that's crazy. Why would somebody do that? How does somebody call forth a thousand missionaries who are willing to die in the country? Everybody say passion. passion. See, that's it. This man's got a vision. He's got passion, and that Passion is calling people. It's attracting people. And that's what I was talking about last night, that, that comment from Frederick Folk. The most powerful weapon on earth is the human soul on fire. And so here's a question. What could you do for God that would set your soul on fire? That's a good question. I want you to think about that. What, what could you do? Just searching your mind, your heart, your spirit. What could I do for God that would really set my soul on fire? See, the answer to that is probably what you were created to do. So just think about that. Okay, if you're going to be really effective for God, what's number one? Everybody say bigger vision. What's number two? Deep passion to carry out what God has put in your heart. Now, here's number three. This one may surprise you a little bit. But number three is clear strategy. See, before you can do anything effectively for God, you've got to learn how to do it. That, that's one thing Greg Whitlow was doing. In, in going to these people, when, when he didn't know what to do, and those five people, he was, in a sense, going to them for strategy. Okay, how do I do this? And you, you can't do anything for God effectively without clear strategy. 
I, I worked with a guy in Cambodia, if you, you can understand this. He planted 1,000 churches in eight years. He won 30,000 Buddhist people to Christ in eight years. How do you do that? How does somebody plant 1,000 churches in eight years? Well, the guy knows what he's doing. He's not flying by the seat of his pants. He learned how to plant churches in Cambodia. Now, if you're going to be successful, you've got to learn that. Whatever you want to do for God, you've got to learn how to do it. And if you don't know how to do it, find somebody that does. Just like Greg was talking about. Go to them. Ask them. And I'll just tell you, I'm, I'm starting on my fifth decade in the IPHC. And I want to tell you, as long as I've been a part of this denomination... We have never learned how to win lost people. One of our biggest weaknesses as a denomination is evangelism. Always has been. Still is today. We don't know how to win lost people. If you're a pastor or you want, you want to win lost people, you've got You've got to figure out how to do it. You've got to come up with a strategy. Find, seek God about it. Ask God where to go. Ask God to show you somebody who is really winning lost people to the Lord and go to them and find out how they're doing it. Pray that, put that through your own mill, and you come up with a way to win lost people. See, if, uh, let, me, let me just give you an example. I, I wish I'd known some of this many years ago. If I were pastoring today, I, I might do something like this. I, uh, say to my congregation, okay, one Sunday every month is going to be evangelism day. All the, uh, the other three days I'll preach to you, but one Sunday a month, maybe first Sunday of the month is evangelism day. And I want all of you to write ten, write on a piece of paper the names of ten people that you know who live in this area who are lost and start praying for them. And on evangelism Sunday, you call those people or talk to those people and invite them to the church. Now, see, that's, that's simple. But that's what I'm talking about. You've got whatever way it is, you've got to find a way to do it. So that, that might be one way. First Sunday of every month is evangelism. And so you tell your people, you don't do it for just one Sunday. You don't do it for just six months because you might not have anybody saved the, the first or second time you do it. But our problem is that we don't let things get into the DNA of our church. And you've got to find a way that evangelism gets into the DNA of your church. 
So if you're going to do that, have all of your people, tell your people, if you're going to be a part of this church, you need an evangelistic prayer list. You need the names of ten people that you're praying for to come, uh, come to the Lord. And the first Sunday of every month on Evangelism Day, you call those people and invite them because I'm going to be preaching a gospel message that Sunday and we're going to believe God to win lost people. So there's a lot of ways to win lost people. All I'm saying to you is that you've got to figure out what your way is. And you've got to stay with it. See, that goes into the next one I'm going to talk about. But, but you've got to have clear strategy. Now, yeah. Okay. Just one more thing. This long-term uh, doing things more than just one time. We are a fad-oriented people. We'll, we'll go through the latest uh, book we've read or the last guy we heard speak or the last lady we heard speak or whatever. We think, oh, I'm going to do that. And then if it doesn't work after a couple of weeks, we stop. But the reason we stop is that it hasn't come from that connection with God where we heard God speak to us about what he wants us to do in our congregation. Let's be God seekers, not fad seekers. Let's not be uh, so intent on being trendy, but being truly spiritual people intent on reaching the lost. And it may look different in your church. It may look different in this church. But our number one goal is to reach the lost, to find them and bring them in. And not just because somebody else had a cute little thing to do that we're going to say we're going to do that too. If you remember, I believe it was, maybe it was Sunday morning I said this, but I'll say it again. The only thing that we can truly imitate in one another is character, not gifts. We cannot imitate each other's gifts. We can imitate each other's love, kindness, graciousness, those things. But let's not give in to the fad thing, but let's hear from God. Okay? okay, that's good. Okay, and, and I would add to that, if, if you're going to do evangelism, do it one way. Don't, don't do it ten ways. Find out what God wants you to do about evangelism and do it. I, one of my friends went to India to train a, a bunch of Indian pastors, and he preached to them. He taught them about 12 forms of evangelism based on the 12 gates of old Jerusalem. I thought, give me a break. I mean, these are simple people. I mean, they're, they're, they're smart people, but they're simple people. Don't give them 12 ways to do something. Just say, this is the way we do that. Every time somebody new comes, this is the way we do that. See, one thing. <clears throat> now, 
your superintendent asked me to say something a, a, a bit about house churches. And so I, I want to say just uh, a, a little bit about that. And I, I want to tell you that people have been planting house churches for thousands of years. In fact, um, you may not, you may be surprised at this, but do you know that all of the churches in the New Testament were house churches? Every one of them. Christianity did not even start building buildings for 300 years. So for the first 300 years of Christianity, there were no church buildings, everything. And I can, I can give you many passages, Acts 2.46, Romans 16.5, 1 Corinthians 16.19, you know, where Paul says, greet the people that meets in that house. So I'm not, I'm not demeaning in any sense church buildings. We need church buildings. We need bigger church buildings to house more people that we're going to win to Jesus. But... There is a place for house churches. I'll give you a, a testimony. I, I work with an IPHC guy in the city of Varanasi in Uttar Pradesh of India. Now, Varanasi is the holiest city in all of India for the Hindus. It's right on the Holy Ganges River. The holiest city for Hindus in all of India, but this guy gets pregnant with a vision to reach Varanasi for Christ. And he starts building house churches. You know what he had? He'd been working there for three or four years. He now has 200 house churches. They have an average of 15 people per house church, so he's got 3,000 members in the holiest city of India to the Hindus. Now, that, that's how he does it. Now, let me just uh, say that uh, any of you that follow George Barna, Barna says that right now there are at least 30,000 house churches that have been started in the USA, and they have between 6 and 12 million people attending them. Barna calls this a quiet revolution, something that, that's kind of going under the radar. He estimates that by 2025, 30 to 35 percent of all Christians will attend house churches. Now, whether or not that's true, who knows? That, that's just what Barna is saying based on his study. But you, you can ask yourself this question, why is house churches one good idea? It's not the only idea. There are many ways to build God's kingdom. But why is it one good idea and one answer is because they can grow and divide rapidly. 
this, uh, the guy, IPHC guy I'm telling you about in Varanasi, you know what he says to his people, his house church leaders? He says, if your house church does not plant another house church in six months, we'll shut you down. See, he, he just knows what God has called him to do, and he knows how to do it, and he's getting on with it. Dr. Peter Wagner says, planting new churches is the most effective way under heaven for winning new believers. Now, another reason that house churches is one good idea is because it saves massive amounts of money. You don't have to have a full-time pastor over a house church. You can have a pastor over a group of house churches who is training the leaders of those house churches. He might be supported full-time, but the individual house church leaders don't have to be supported full-time, and you don't have to build all these new church buildings because you're moving, uh, you're meeting in people's homes. Another reason it, sorry? Yeah, more money for mission, yeah. Okay. And uh, one thing it does is involve more people in ministry. See, that's part of our problem, is that we are not equipping our people to work for God. How many of you know Ephesians chapter 5? God gave to the church apostles, prophets, evangelists, pastors, and teachers. Why? Yeah, what did he give them for? To equip the saints for the work of the ministry. See, that's that's as plain as it can be. But most of us pastors are trying to do too much ourselves instead of training and releasing other people to do what they can do. So it involves more people in ministry. People don't tend to get lost in the crowd so easily as they do in the church we attend in Conroe, Texas, has 6,000 members, had 12,000 during Easter. But it's real easy in a church like that for people to get lost. So in one advantage to house churches, don't have so many people that tend to get lost in the crowd. And let me tell you the final reason why house churches may be a good idea and they may become more prominent is because of persecution. Now, I want you to listen to me. All of you know this, but there are things on the horizon in this country that indicate it may not be long until real persecution comes to Christians if you really believe what the Bible says. And I don't need to say much about that. All of you know the things that are happening. The the homosexual lobby right now is the most powerful lobby in this country. They are making vast inroads and bringing persecution to people and we, we love homosexuals. Homosexuals are people. We love them. 
That's not the problem. The problem is the people that are trying to take this and force it on everybody else and fine you or send you to jail if you don't agree with them at every point. So I tell you, if persecution really comes to this country, the house church movement will spring up. But anyway, uh, uh, just one other thing about that. If, if, you, if that's something God leads you to do, focus on, on evangelism and discipling new believers, not on building deep relationships. And some of you may have some questions about that. And believe me, there is a place for deep relationships. But when you get hung up in that, and a lot of house churches do, they get real comfortable with the number of people there, and they don't want any new people coming, and it'll kill evangelism. So, so let your relationships build around winning lost people and discipling them. So... Just uh, one other thing about strategy. Now, we're, we're talking basically about strategy. And that is what Jesus told us to do in the Great Commission was not make new believers, not make new church members. He told us to make disciples. That's very clear. Go into all the world and make disciples of all people. That's the fundamental charge of the Great Commission, and most of us are not doing that. I'm telling you, I, I can count on both hands the number of churches I know of in the United States that are effectively winning and discipling new believers. So, if you're going to do it, my question is, how are you going to do it? What's your strategy? See, you've got to figure this out. If you're a leader, you've got to figure it out. Seeking God, talking to people, find people that are effectively discipling new believers. Find out how they're doing it. Run it through your mill. Pray it and pray through it and, and come with a strategy for how you're going to do it. Now, I was preaching overseas, teaching for years about discipling new believers. And every time I would teach it, the pastors would say, we don't know how to do it. And so I wrote a discipling manual about how to do this. If any of you are interested, you can find it on our website, mci3.org. But, but it's a basic eight-week uh, series of lessons where a mature believer takes a new believer and meets with them once each week for eight weeks to help them build a real foundation in their lives for walking with God. So you're free to use that if you want to. But all I'm saying to you is strategy 
If you're going to disciple new believers, how are you going to do it? You've got to come up with a way. Okay, now I need to wind this up. Okay. Four things are crucial if you want to be effective for God. What's number one? Bigger vision. What's number two? Deep passion. What's number three? Clear strategy for whatever God has called you to do. And here's the fourth one, and this is the clincher, long-term commitment. That's what Peggy was talking about a while ago. Once you figure out what to do, what God is leading you to do, you don't do it for one week or one month or six months. You do it week after week, month after month, year after year. Long-term commitment after you figure out what to do. Now, a lot of us, we, we've got a lot of pastors that have long-term commitment. We had illustration the other day, what Floyd Bean had been 60 years or so at one church, and, and that's wonderful. That's, that's faithful. That's a part of faithfulness. But that's not the totality of faithfulness because faithfulness also involves accomplishing things for God doing things. So not long-term commitment is not just staying at a place long-term. It's learning what to do and how to do it and then doing that year after year. See, that, that's really crucial if uh, you are going to be effective in the work of God. And, and Peggy was talking a while ago. She was hitting a nail on the head about these fads. And, and that's, what, that's what I did for many years. I'd go to a conference, and I'd hear somebody teach something. I, Boy, that sounds good. And I'd go back, and I'd work it for a couple of months, and then I'd go to another conference, and somebody knows how to do it a different way, and I'd come back and try to do that, you know, and nothing would ever really work powerfully. Why? Because I'm just flipping around. I'm just trying this and trying that and trying that without ever really getting something in my heart from God about a way to do this. Okay, that's, that's enough about that. If you really want to be effective for God, what's number one? What's number two? What's number three? What's number four? Okay, if you leave any one of those four out, you will not be highly successful. So, that's what, that's what I want to share. Okay, let's take some questions. Anybody have questions or comments about anything we've said? Yeah, Terry. Yeah.
Yeah. The Lord has not been faithful to me uh, in helping me by this pandemic, but it all failed. Right. Therefore, here's the whole point of this. Okay. You hit a nail on the head because a lot of pastors are like that. They've tried this and tried that and tried that and tried that, and nothing worked. The question is, why didn't it work? Well, they're probably for a variety of reasons. And one reason was they probably didn't really get that in their heart. They were just trying something. They, they were just trying an idea. They didn't really pray that through and get that in their heart and, and, and understand that that's what God wanted them to do and one of the reasons they're like that is because they miss number four. Long-term commitment. They'd tried a little while, and then if it didn't work, they'd try something else. Everybody say long-term commitment. See, it's not easy to build the work of God. It takes a lot of hard work, and, and you have to do it consistently. That's, that's one reason many things don't work. We don't do them long enough for them to lay hold, to get in the hearts of people. All right, that's exactly right. Okay, anybody else? Comments or questions? Yes. I got that on, uh, on uh, a website. Just Google Dr. Tim Elmore. Dr. Tim Elmore and, and, and maybe Google the difference between intensity and passion. Okay. Anyone else? Questions? Comments? All right. So let me... Um, let me just talk about something else that, that is applicable to everyone. Now, I've been talking primarily to leaders, people that are in key leadership positions. And again, it doesn't matter what your ministry is. You know, I told you last night about Ellen, uh, our daughter Ellen. She's saying, today I found the reason for which I was born, and that was to train children. That's what God called her to do, to reach and train children. So she's been doing that for how long now? Twelve years. She's been doing that, and she's got a thousand children from birth through fifth grade. See, it doesn't matter what your calling is. But you, you've got to get it in your heart. The younger you are, the better uh, when you understand what God's called you to do, the more you can prepare for it. You can get your education, whatever. But it doesn't matter what age you are because I told you last night, it's never too late to be what you could have been. Okay, anybody else? All right, I, I want to talk to you just a, a, a few moments about the most important thing in the world. So we'll leave that off, and now we'll talk about the most important thing in the world. I'm not kidding. 
But that's not according to me. That's according to Jesus. In Matthew chapter 22, I, I may have mentioned this yesterday morning. Matthew chapter 22. A lawyer comes to Jesus and trying to, to trap him. And he says to Jesus, what is the most important commandment? See, he's, he's trying to trick him. And he's, he's trying to create a way that the Pharisees can, can nail him. And so he says, what's the, most, what's the greatest commandment? Or another way of saying that, what, what's the most important thing that God ever said? And Jesus answers him immediately. And what does he say to him? Yeah. Love God with all your heart soul, mind, and strength. And then he said, this is the first and greatest commandment. Most important thing in the whole world is loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. And the second is like that, and that is loving your neighbor as yourself. Okay, let, let's talk about that just a moment. How do you do that? How do you love God with all your heart? And the answer, the first and most important answer to that is that your heart has to be captured by Him. Now, please listen to me because there's a lot of Christians who love Jesus, but their hearts are not captured by Him. See, Jesus is talking about building a relationship. I told you last night, John 17, 3, this is eternal life, that, that they may know Him, the only true God, and Jesus, whom God has sent. See, you... you you have to build a relationship with Him. And, and please listen. <clears throat> you, nobody is ever going to build a deep relationship with somebody unless they really want to. Un unless there's something about that person that attracts you. Otherwise, you won't do it. And that's part of our problem. Our hearts are not captured by Jesus. And that's one reason, it's not the only reason, but that's one reason that we leave off meaningful devotional time. Now, I've, I've been just finished writing a book that I'm entitled The Pathway to Knowing and Loving God. And one of the things I've been doing over the last few years is finding pastors and asking them this question. What is the most successful thing that you have ever done in your devotional time that really ministered to you? Do you know the answer I get? They don't know. I don't know. Let me think about it. And, and the answer is that 
many people have never really found something in their devotional time that that was really significant, really meaningful to them. But it all begins if when, when your heart is captured by him. Now, let me give you an illustration. When Peggy and I were courting, um, I, I was at OU, and the first summer I needed to raise some money, so I went uh, with the Southwestern Company on selling Bibles. They sent me to uh, first to Pennsylvania and then to North Carolina. Bob was with me on that. And uh, after, after the summer was over, I was heading back home. This would have been in 1964. Yeah, 64. And so uh, coming back, I bought a 1951 Chevrolet for about $75 in North Carolina. And I drove that thing back to Oklahoma, drove it all around for a while, and then I started hearing this knock, 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 knock. I was dating Peggy at the time, and so I would drive from Norman to Sepulpa with that thing, knock, 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 knock. <laughs> I did that for, for I don't know how many times, and finally came back one day and it threw a rod just as I was uh, coming in to Norman. But but that's not the end of the story. After that, I bought a 1954 Ford from Bob Bailey. Now, this was some kind of car. The, the right side uh, of, the, of the, it was two-door uh, car, and, the, and the, the panel, the door panel on the right side was bashed in. So it, it was just shut. You couldn't open it. So the only way you could get into the car was through the driver's side. And not long after, after buying it, I backed into a pole and uh, damaged the whole rear end. So now the trunk won't stay down. And so I had to wire it down with baling wire. And just a few weeks after I bought it from him, it was a standard shift car, and it hung up in high gear. Somebody had not taken care of the transmission. This thing hung up in high gear. I'm telling you, have you ever driven a standard transmission car with it hung up in high gear, and it won't go in reverse? And it won't go into low gear. <laughs> Every time I'd park, park this thing, I'd have to go up a hill and park on the backside, on the downslope of the hill so that I could get started. And I'd drive this thing back and forth from Norman to Sepulpa to, uh, to see Peggy. And, and the most amazing thing about the car was it had a heater, but the heater would only work when you open the driver's door. Now, I'm telling you the truth. I never figured that out. But the only way the fan would come on is you open the driver's door and the fan comes on. 
So here I am driving in the dead of winter between uh, Oklahoma, between uh, Norman and Sepulpa, and my feet get so cold, I'm driving down the road, opening the driver's door so that I can get some some heat on my feet. Now, here's the point. Why, why would somebody do that? And you probably say stupid. <laughs> and that's part of it. But see, the, the only reason anybody will do anything like that is I wanted to be with her. See, that, that's the only reason. And that's what has to happen in order to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You've got to have your heart captured by Him. Let me tell you a little story. A few years ago, a number of years ago now, there was a famous filmmaker in South Africa uh, who was converted. His name was Reghard Vandenberg, very famous in South Africa, made many films. He got saved. And not long after he got saved, God spoke to him and said, I want you to, to do a film about my son Jesus. And I want you to take every word of it from the Bible. And he obeyed. And he, he did a film series that he called Matthew. Have any of you ever seen that? If you have never seen that, I want you to find the, the series just call Matthew. It's called Matthew because every word in it is from the book of Matthew. But what's so fascinating about this film is the guy that plays Jesus. I'm telling you, if you want a new picture of Jesus, you get that, that film series and you watch that. Reghard Vandenberg was so concerned about finding the right person to play the role of Jesus that he went all over the world interviewing actors. And he finally found an actor in the United States, Italian-American, by the name of Bruce Marciano. And he gave him the role of, of Jesus. And he said, said to him one thing. He said, when you play the role of Jesus, I've got one word for you. And that word is joy. Joy. And he said, I base that on a passage I read in Hebrews chapter 1 where King James says something like, Wherefore, even God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of joy above your fellow men. So he said, joy. And boy, if you want to see somebody full of joy, you, you watch that. I, I love, I remember a scene in that where uh, the, the disciples are on the Sea of Galilee and, uh, and they wake Jesus up because they think the boat's going down and, uh, and Jesus rebukes them in a sense and, and he says, where is your faith? You know, and sometimes we think Jesus is saying, now where is your faith? But this guy grabs one of the disciples and kisses him on the forehead and says, where is your faith? 
I tell you, that revolutionized my picture of Jesus. But here's the thing. A newsman interviewed him sometime after that and asked him this question. He said, what did that do for you, playing the role of Jesus? How did that impact you? You know what he said? He said, I fell in love with Jesus. He said, that's what it did for me. And then he said this, to love Jesus is one thing, but to fall in love with Jesus is something totally different. He said, I fell in love with Jesus. See, that's what it takes, really, to love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You fall in love with this man. See, love will find a way. Now, there are many ways to do devotional times. But see, when, when I was in love with Peggy, I found a way to go. Sorry? No, it's not finished. It's even bigger now. <laughs> but I found a way. And... and uh, if, if you really fall in love with Jesus, I'm going to tell you, you'll find a way to connect with him, to spend time with him. There's lots of ways to do it. I've found a way. I've, I've been using um, a way for a long time. This is the most meaningful thing I've ever done. But that, that's not what's important. Love will find a way if your heart is captured. See, if you ever see Jesus as he really is, three things will happen to you. Number one, your mouth will drop open. You will stand in awe of him because you've never seen anyone like him. That's what happened to the disciples in, in that, that deal on the Sea of Galilee when Jesus spoke to the wind said, Stop. Spoke to the waves, be still, and immediately happened. Uh, it happened. Their mouths dropped open, and they said, who is this man? They had already been with him for a while, but they didn't know who he was. They said, who is this man that can speak in the wind and the sea, obey him? See, if you ever really see Jesus, first thing that will happen is you'll stand in awe of him. And the second thing, is that you will fall deeply in love with him. You, you can't see Jesus and not fall in love with him. That's the reason Paul would pray for people and he'd say, Lord, I want you to open the eyes of their understanding so that they can see. So you, you'll stand amazed. You're your, your, your mouth will fall open. You'll fall in love with him. And the third thing that will happen to you, if you ever really see him, is you will surrender everything to him. His cause is so glorious. It is so compelling that everything else in life will melt into insignificance. I was thinking about this and one I read from one guy what was his name 
Oh, John Eldridge. Okay, listen to this. He said, the greatest human tragedy is to give up the search. The search for intimacy with Jesus. The search to connect with Him, to know Him. He said, the greatest tragedy is to give up the search. So don't give up the search. <laughs> yeah, fall in love with Him. Let Him capture your heart. That's the most important thing in the world. So just one other thing, and then we'll have a question or two if you have it. And the other part of that is loving other people like you love yourself. How do you do that? Do you know the, the best thing that I have ever done in my whole life, I did about three years ago, to help me love other people? You know what it was? I memorized 1 Corinthians 13, I think it's verses 4 to 6, and I memorized it from the, living, the New Living Translation. I love what it says about how to love other people. And here's what it says. Love is patient and kind. Anybody here have a problem with patience? <laughs> with other people? Love is patient and kind. Love is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. And listen to this. Love does not demand its own way. <laughs> I tell you, the Holy Spirit has brought that to my mind 10,000 times when I'm dealing with people that are hard to get along with and and, uh, and it'll just come back to me because I ask him to bring it to my mind. When, it, when I ten, uh, have a tendency to be rude to people, and, and uh, that'll just come back to me. Love is patient and kind. It's not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. And then it says this, it is not irritable. <laughs> Uh, I need that sometimes. Love is not irritable, and it keeps no record of being wronged. Wow. <laughs> so, how do you love other people like you love yourself? Love is patient and kind. It is not jealous or boastful or proud or rude. It does not demand its own way. It is not irritable. And it keeps no record of being wronged. Anyway, that's enough of that. Thank you for listening to me. Let me just pray for you. Father, thank you for these precious, precious men and women. Thank you for the privilege of, that you've given Peggy and me to, to talk to them about things that are on our heart. 
And I pray for them, Lord. I pray that you will sovereignly raise up people right here in this meeting that have big vision and deep passion and clear strategy and long-term commitment. Will you do that, Father? In Jesus' name, will you sovereignly lay your hand on some men and women and raise them up to do powerful things for you? And will you capture our hearts so that our hearts belong to you? Help us, Father. Help us, I pray, to love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength and to love other people like we love ourselves. And I ask that in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, any questions, any comments? Yes. Okay. Um, I don't mind. It works for me. It may not work for you. But what what really got me started in, in really pursuing meaningful devotional time was two things. One was Revelation 3.20. What did Jesus say? Behold, I stand at the door and knock. Now, all of you know that's written to the church. In Ephesus, that's not written to unbelievers. I stand at the door and knock. If any man will hear my voice and open the door, he will do what? Come in, sit down to dinner with him. See, that, that touched me to think that Jesus really wanted to have relationship with me. That he wanted it enough that he would knock at the door of my heart. I, I just find that incredible. And the second thing that really got me to thinking was John 10, 10, or uh, John chapter 10, where, where uh, Jesus said, my sheep know my voice. They will not follow another. They know my voice. And I started asking myself, do I really know his voice? And then I began to understand that the only way you can build a relationship with anybody, if I want to build a relationship with Justin, the only way I can do that is to have meaningful dialogue with him. I'm, I mean, not talking about surface things, but meaningful dialogue, and both of us have to talk and listen. See, if I do all of the talking, Justin will learn a lot about me, but we won't have a relationship. You've got to talk, and you've got to listen. How do you build a relationship with Jesus? Same thing. Now, most of us are, are pretty good about talking, but not very good about listening. 
See, we, we, we pray and we talk, 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 talk. Talk, 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 talk. Talk, 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 talk. And then we say, oh, Lord, it's been good to be with you. And we don't, we don't listen for a minute to what he's saying. See, what, what would it be like to, 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 to be interacting with somebody you really esteem? Let, let's say Mother Teresa. Let, let's say if you could have 30 minutes with Mother Teresa, would you do all the talking? What a waste. See, the only way you can build a relationship is to talk and listen. And so I've decided, okay, I'm, I'm going to try to do that. And so I started what I call conversation with Jesus. And so I'd take, I, I now, I've been doing this for, I don't know, maybe five or six years now. I've got. I've got over 3,000 pages of talking and listening to Jesus. And, and what I do is take a passage of Scripture and think about it and then highlight the things in that passage that, uh, that really strike me. And then I start talking to Jesus about it. And, and I'll just take one of those points and I'll say something to him, and then I'll stop and listen. Isn't that how conversation goes? You say something to someone, and then you listen to their response, and then you say something, and then you listen. Well, that, that's what I try to do. Now, please, I'm, I'm, I'm not trying to get out in left field, and I don't in any sense equate what I write down with the Bible. But I'm trying to listen. And so I say something and then I try to listen. And what I think I'm hearing, I write down. And I, I just put it in quotes because I, I think that's what Jesus is saying to me. And then I respond to what I just heard. And then I listen again. For isn't that the way conversation goes? You talk, you listen, you respond. So anyway, that, that's what I do. That's the most meaningful thing that I've ever done. One of the protections of that is I do it around the Scriptures. It, it's out of the Scriptures. I'm asking Him and listening, asking and listening, and so far, I haven't got out on any wild stuff, <laughs> just, just talking and listening to Jesus. So anyway, that's, that's what I do, and I write it down. I, I just kind, kind of record conversation, but that may not work for you. But the point is, yeah, yeah, that's, uh, I, I have illustrations of that in my new book. It's not published yet, but. Hopefully will be before too long. But anyway, the point is love finds a way. And if your heart gets captured by Jesus, you fall in love with Jesus, you will find a way to meaningfully dialogue with him, whatever that is.
But just remember what Greg said. Everybody has two ears and one mouth. <laughs> That's pretty significant. Okay, anybody else? Question? Yes? If you ever really seen three things will happen. Number one, your mouth will drop open. You'll stand in awe of him. Number two, you will fall deeply in love with him if you ever see him, really. And number three, you'll surrender everything to him. What, what happened with the disciples will happen with you. You'll leave everything in, in your heart to follow him. I, I was just sensing the Spirit of the Lord saying that let's not let vision be a substitute for Jesus. Yeah. Amen. They don't have to be mutually exclusive. They're bound up together when it comes from Him. But it would be like me talking about my wonderful marriage but never spending time with Jim we talk about our work for God but are we connected to him Bob Roberts a pastor in Fort Worth Texas believed that God gave him a vision for a large church that would touch the nations and he was praying. His church got up to 3,000. They had a big uh, problem in the church. The attendance went down to 300. And he was out walking in a field and praying. And he was saying, God, I thought you told me that I was going to build a big church. And the Holy Spirit came to him and said, Bob, when will Jesus ever be enough for you? The vision is big, but Jesus is bigger. Don't get so wrapped up in the vision you forget who's the author of all of that. They're not mutually exclusive. When will Jesus ever be enough for you? And, yeah, just, just to hitchhike on that, it's not, as we were saying yesterday, doing things for Jesus, it's doing things with Jesus. See, it's a partnership. You're teamed up with him to accomplish something. Okay, thank you so much. God bless you.